The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. And we're recording to the cloud. With uh, Tom Wark of the Daily Fermentations, am I getting that well, right? Well, yeah, Tom Wark of a lot of a lot of different a lot things. of things. My blog is the uh, is Fermentation, the Daily Wine blog. I've been writing that for about sixteen years now. But um, I make my money as a wine marketer and publicist, and then I'm also the uh, executive director of the National Association of Wine Retailers. So yeah. I wear a few different hats. That is. Uh, you don't see it on the, but on the Zoom call, you don't see it in podcast land, but there's a hat rack behind Tom with about seven hats hanging on it that awesome. I look like well that. worn. <laughs> I might change my business card now that I think about it. That's great. <laughs> uh, well, we have Tom today. Um, we're gathered here to celebrate the most important uh, holiday of the holiday season, um, which is December 5th, uh, repeal day the repeal of prohibition. Uh, and so we're going to talk all kinds of things about what that means and, and um, actually get some maybe, well, slightly serious. Somebody once recently described the podcast, Tom, as um, highly entertaining and moderately educational. So if, <laughs> if we can at least, you know, stay on track uh, on that, but um, there's, there's a lot to talk about um, with shipping wine the you know neo-prohibitionists as we were starting to get into when i just figured we had to hit record um but you want to sort of give a little bit more of of your background for a second before we yeah sure yeah sure so i got into the wine business in 1990 um i had just graduated with a master's in history which allowed me the skills to do just about nothing um actually i had planned to go into academia and i started grading papers as an assistant professor of assistant professor as, as an assistant to a professor I started getting these papers that had no verbs in them, right? These were freshmen who were writing. There were no verbs. The sentence structure was wrong. And all of a sudden, I had this image of spending 30 years in academia reading these essays that had no verbs, right? And it, I, I got to get out of here. So I quit. Then I had to get a job because I, I got out of school. And um, I thought, okay, well, I can write. I can do this. I can do that. Maybe I can be in marketing. And then I found out, oh, public relations falls inside marketing. There's all sorts of PR. There's wine PR. Oh, that sounds good. I was living in San Francisco at the time. I got a job at a wine PR firm. Um, usually we were servicing, you know, local wineries for the most part, some, um, some imports. And after three, it took me three years to, to do the math, to figure out how much I was being paid by the firm versus how much the clients I was servicing were paying the firm. And that's when I left with two or three clients, doubled my salary, um, and embarked on my own firm. So I've had my own uh, consultancy since about 1993, 94, um, working mainly with uh, wineries, retailers, media, um, um, ABA associations, that, that sort of thing. And then in 2007, I was asked to come on board as the executive director of the National Association of Wine Retailers. And I was asked to be their executive director because they were embarking on a mission to open up um, states to allow out-of-state retailers to ship in and so it was a project that involved litigation it involved um, lobbying and legislation and membership recruitment and it was right at my alley because i've always been this huge advocate for consumer access to alcohol and so i've been doing that ever since as well as my pr work and then um step in 2004 actually before that i started writing fermentation the daily wine blog and that's always been an outlet for me because I've always been convinced that everyone needs to know what I think. And um, <laughs> so that's a, that's a good place to, for people to, to flock to, to find out, gosh, what is Tom Work thinking? So I've been doing and, that. And, 
and and Tom, excuse me, just for a sec. So for our listeners out there, it's fermentationwineblog.com. It uh, check it out. Um, the great thing about it is, is it's exactly what I always have felt since I've read it. It is exactly what you're thinking. And it's kind of like you don't really give a shit what anyone else thinks. And that's it's very free. It's not. Um, uh, it, it, yeah, it just rolls. And, and I really appreciate it for that. Thank you for saying that. That's my, my intent is to is to offer sort of um, reasoned reasoned insight into what I think ought to be or what I think is or what I think should be. I've made a few enemies um, as a result of this. Well, not a few enemies, a lot of enemies. They're almost all in the wholesale tier. Um, <laughs> but I can live with that, right? I've never represented a wholesaler and odds are I never will. So I'm okay with that. You're, you're not um, wanted in like a state of Utah or the state of Pennsylvania or anything like that? I, I wanted in Florida where Southern is uh, located. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I would say that there's probably a few states and maybe a handful of cities in this country that you, you shouldn't go to. One of these days, one of these days, I'm going to publish all the emails that I've gotten from folks who want to do terrible, terrible things to me um, and have the worst things in the world to say about me. And occasionally I'll actually... I'll actually publish one of those. And the ones that I publish are the ones that inevitably come in um, under anonymous Gmail um, addresses. You know, it's like 123H5564 at gmail.com, right? <laughs> they don't leave their name, but they, they call me all sorts of names. I don't know what I'm talking about. The three-tier system is going to save the world. So I'll, I'll maybe one day I'll publish all of those. Yeah. Well, so let's... let's my, <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, and maybe in, is it, uh, uh, I forget the, the late night show, but maybe you should read those live oh. to people. Oh, the like, the Jimmy Fallon, does that Fallon right, right. does that? No, no, right. Like, right. Uh, or no, no, Kimmel. I think it's Kimmel. Kimmel. Does, and yeah, he has Kimmel. people write, who has people read tweets about them, about themselves. So yeah, you could read those letters. It'd be awesome. It'd have to be on YouTube though. Not a bad. I've done a few. I've done a few uh, YouTube videos and uploaded them to the site. So that's not a bad idea. I've never actually thought about doing that. I'd have to look at uh, standards and uh, and whatnot. Can I say things <laughs> like fuck on the air and fuck you? I mean, because those well, are the kind of letters I get. You can on this show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're celebrating Repeal Day, December fifth. But really, I mean, the fight that. And, and so when I say that, everybody goes, oh, it's, there's no prohibition in this country and we're allowed to buy alcohol when and where we want and how we want. But really, that's not true, right? Repeal Day didn't take us all to like freedom and liberty in these things. And, and that's kind of what you've spent the better part of your career fighting against the to actually fully repeal prohibition. That's true. I mean... Repeal a prohibition, repealed a national prohibition, but it threw it back to the states. And essentially the Fed said, listen, you guys can do whatever you want. You can keep prohibition going in your state if you want. You can open it up, you can regulate it this way, you can regulate it that way. And the states said, we're in, let's go. And so a lot of them decided that um, in a post-repeal, um, in, in a, a post-repeal environment, they would have perhaps the state do all the sales and distribution, both both wholesale and retail. Some states opened it up to sort of licensing individual businesses, but in every case, um, um, no matter what system the state put together, access to alcohol was the least on their mind. They, the, the people who put together the systems didn't care that much about how consumers would access alcohol. And that might have been okay, right? You're in a post-prohibition environment and all of a sudden you got a few, you got breweries coming back and the breweries that are coming back, they're all local. They're not necessarily distributed nationally, right? And so, right. you know, you're gonna, you're gonna drink what's produced locally. Maybe you're gonna get some, some whiskey or bourbon or gin or scots shipped in. Um, and for the most part, there aren't a lot of craft distillers and, and there certainly aren't a lot of wineries in the 1930s, right? They're practically all dead unless they were making um, wine for the church. Um, so people weren't necessarily concerned with getting their hands on the latest um, uh, cold cab in 1934, 1935. But then things start to move forward. The system doesn't change. We still have this thing called the three-tier system that was put into place that requires producers to sell all of their inventory to a wholesaler in a state 
And then the retailers in that state have to buy it from the wholesaler. Now, in that scenario, do you want to be the retailer, the wholesaler, or the producer? Well, I want to be the wholesaler because I'm guaranteed to get every sale that goes through that state. And that system moved forward in almost every state until something started to happen around the 19, late, I'd say 1980s, early 1980s and going forward. There started to be this explosion of what I would call craft wineries. Uh, smaller and smaller wineries making better and better wine um, combined with Americans' um, uh, recognition of wine country in a much more important and broad way. All of a sudden, people in the 80s and 90s, people started flocking to Napa and Santa Barbara and Sonoma and Mendocino, and they started being introduced to these smaller wineries. And when they asked, can I get this shipped to me? The answer was no. You can't get this shipped to you. That's illegal. <laughs> and you'd have people stare the wineries in the face with a dull look saying, just ship me the wine. What are you talking about? No, I can't. We have to sell it to a wholesaler first in your state, and then they have to sell it to a retailer. Well, once the consumers started to get a little bit pissed off, and once wineries started to realize that their um, that their profit margin would be considerably more if they didn't have to sell to a wholesaler, that's when there was a movement that was started to sort of not necessarily dismantle this three-tier, this rigorous three-tier system, but to open that up a little bit and allow producers to um, sell directly to consumers. And it took a while and it took a Supreme Court case and it took numerous court cases before that, before we finally got somebody in authority, mainly the Supreme Court to say, listen, states, you can't ban out-of-state retailers from shipping in here while you let your own, or rather out-of-state wineries from shipping in here while you let your own wineries ship to people in your state. That's unconstitutional, stop it. And they did for the most part. New laws changed to the point where now wineries can, at least California wineries can ship to, I think it's 46 states now. They got to get the permits. They got to pay the taxes and yada, 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 send in the reports, but they can do it now. And it's opened up an entirely new business um, for smaller wineries, medium-sized wineries. But even 46 states is fairly new, right? I mean, it, what was the number 10 years ago or 15 years, years ago, ago? We were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, I guess, 35. So it's been exactly. a slow process of opening up states for wineries since 2005 when we had the Grand Home Be Healed Supreme Court decision. You know, a lot of states just, you know, they sat back on their heels and said, make us. And so, they're, okay, fine, we'll file suit. And of course, they're going to win that suit. But you have to go through the suit, the lawsuits and the briefings, and it takes time. And finally, the legislature says, let's just pass the law, right? And so, and then you've got the wholesalers who are always pushing back saying, yeah, let's open up um, winery shipping, but you can only ship one case a month into the state. And the wineries are saying, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. And so you have the stickering going back and forth, negotiations, and it takes time. But now we got to the point where we're at 46 states allow out-of-state wineries to ship in. And that's good news. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I, I remember there was a time where there were, there was a question of why can't we set, ship beer and then why can't we ship distilled spirits? Um, and and how, how did that work into it? Was, did they just not have large enough or strong enough lobby groups? That's an interesting question because it's a lot of things that are changing in that regard right now. Uh, for a long time, well, the, let's call it the craft wine um, movement. The craft wine movement happened um, much, much earlier than craft beer. Craft beer came along later and craft wine came way in front of the craft distilling um, right. trade, which we're in the middle of now. We're, I mean, this is the golden age for drinkers, right? I mean, if you want to get, if you want to get blitzed, you can get blitzed on the best stuff and something different every single day of the week, right? Yeah. Um, but because there weren't a lot of craft distillers and there weren't a lot of craft brewers, they weren't interested so much in direct consumer shipping, at least those industries. Now that there are smaller, lot, a lot more smaller distillers, breweries, they're interested in getting their, um, uh, their goods directly to the consumer. Plus, you've still got the bottleneck that the three-tier system creates. Um, and so now the distillers and the brewers, too, are looking to, um, to, to pivot and look to the legislatures in different states to pass laws allowing them to ship wine or rather beer and, and spirits in this next year i think we're going to see legislation introduced in probably three or four states at least that allow um, craft spirits to be uh shifted shifted B 
beer is going a little bit slower. There are some other issues with beer. A lot of uh, craft brewers are more concerned with self-distribution. That is being to sell, being able to sell directly to retailers or restaurants directly without having to go through the wholesaler. But distillers are more interested in, um, in direct consumer shipping. So that's going to change. Right now, there aren't a lot of states that allow it. Um, right. Traditionally, spirits have been considered more dangerous than beer. But I mean, the three of us have seen people get real dangerous drinking wine, right? And drinking beer. Right. And they have. So that's going to change slowly. Um, what I'm working on is trying to get states to um, open up to allow out-of-state retailers to ship in. Only 16 states allow out-of-state retailers to ship in, which means that only 16 states allow imported wines to be shipped in to consumers in those states. Because only retailers sell imported wines. Right. I mean, good. Go ahead. Oh, it's, I was just gonna say, that's, that's amazing. That, I, ne I never realized that that number was so low. Incredibly low, it's ridiculous. What happened was, after the 2005 Granholm versus Heald Supreme Court case, a lot of states started to change their laws. And as they did, they took the opportunity to say, okay, we'll change our laws and we'll allow out-of-state wineries to get a permit to ship in, but we'll make it illegal for out-of-state retailers to ship in. And there's, a, there's another large retailer association in America and they're opposed to retailer shipping, believe it or not. They're sort of connected at the hip to the wholesalers so when these states started passing laws that allowed um, out-of-state wineries to ship, but not retailers, this large national retail organization, they didn't, they didn't raise any concerns. So all these laws started getting passed, and there were fewer and fewer states that allowed retailers to ship in. Finally, the National Association of Wine Retailers formed, and we said, that's not right. Let's try to change this. So that's what we've been working on. We, we're waiting right now, by the way, on the Supreme Court to tell us if they're going to take a case of ours. We'll find out in December. It, it, there's two things that are just sort of like crazy to think about. Um, first of all, we don't exist. And by we, I mean Dane Sellers, 16600, and um, probably 60% of the Enterprise Vineyards winery client list um, don't exist in a world where you can't ship wine to consumers in 46 states. Um, and just like there's a whole sector of sector of this market that is that just hasn't isn't doesn't exist if that doesn't happen if that's not available right and so i think that it's important for like the people who listen to this show and, and love wine and get wine shipped with them all the time that you know that how new that is uh because i don't think i necessarily realized and then the cool. second piece is living in california where we can get wine shipped to us for from anywhere and you know direct imports and all these things um i think it's all you know sort of like this bubble of sheltered from sure. the weirdness of the alcohol laws around the country right the the change in consumer access to wine in the last 20 years has been a, a revolution and it's a do it's a dual revolution on the one hand it's work hand in hand on the one hand you've seen states open up to allow this direct consumer shipping and that in turn has um has justified the, uh, the creation of a whole bunch of new wineries who can operate under that model, right? I mean, you can make a thousand cases of wine annually now, price it at, I don't know, 80, 90 bucks a bottle, right? And you can make a living. Right. Um, you could never make a living on a thousand cases at 90 bucks a bottle selling to a wholesaler. You couldn't do it. But if you're getting that margin back and selling it straight to the consumer, and if you're keeping that consumer, you're staying close to them, you're interacting with them and you're making friends and ambassadors, that's a different kind of business that really didn't exist all that much 20 years ago. It's a different business now for, uh, for wineries. Entirely. Yeah. I mean, but we, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Honestly, this podcast wouldn't exist. 97% no. of the people that we interview with, with 500 case side project wineries and, and, you know, thousand, 2000 case full-time projects would, would vanish in the night. If there was consider the ripple effects too. Um, with that opening up of direct consumer shipping, um, attracting people to wine country has become more and more and more important, right? That's where you discover new customers. That's where you get them in your tasting room. Um, and that in turn 
has riled up a lot of the locals, right? I don't know how many of you, I don't know if y'all follow, for example, Napa politics, but there's a real strong contingent in Napa Valley that's saying, wait a minute, we need to shut down tourism to this county. We just need to shut it down. We need to not approve any more wineries. We need to restrict visitations. And these are people who are reacting to so many more people coming to Napa. Um, and over the past 25 years, the same thing has happened to Sonoma, Sonoma Valley too. I lived in Sonoma Valley for many years and don't tell anyone. Okay. I like it much more than Napa. Um, nobody on the, nobody listens to that podcast. This podcast will say that. Uh, and no, nobody knows. No, I lived in Glen Ellen and I lived in, uh, in Sonoma for many years. Um, and I moved to Napa for a girl. Um, but anyway, be that as it may. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and so you have this reaction by locals who are reacting to more and more visitor traffic to the area. So the ripple effect of this ability to go direct to the consumer, it's, it's never ending. And it's spawned court cases. Um, it's spawned new technologies. It just goes on and on and on. I think also something that's changed a lot since I've been in the business, Tom, and, and I started in 86, um, is that, you know, there were a lot of wineries that were in the 200 to 400,000 case a year production. And they, and they usually grew a lot of their own grapes and they had tasting rooms. They never did the business that the tasting rooms see now. They were very reliant on the three-tier system. Yeah. And, and over time, as the rise of the small, you know, uh, wineries like us, you know, you call it 500 to a couple thousand, all those 250,000 case wineries all got absorbed by yeah. big guys. Yeah. And, and some of them aren't even making that much wine now being owned by one of the large corporations. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? I understand exactly what you're saying. And by the Is, way, those people who are making say 200, 250,000 cases a year versus those people who are making 5,000 cases a year, these businesses do not meet anywhere. They're entirely different businesses. They, they operate on different planes altogether. They don't even speak the same language. Um, but you're right. I mean, when you got into the business in, in the mid eighties, it was a very, very simple business. You had to bottle enough wine to service enough wholesalers in enough states um, to make a living. And sometimes, you know, people who aren't in the business, you explain to them, right? What it is, what it is winemakers do. And so you explain to them, well, we make a $20 bottle of wine, right? And in our tasting room, we sell it to you at $20 a bottle. But if we sell it to a wholesaler, we sell it to them at $10 a bottle. So start doing the math, right? In terms of what your return on investment is. That extra 10 bucks a bottle, that'll build you a tasting room. That'll build you a nice tasting room over time, won't it? Right. And that'll build you um, the technology to reach out to consumers. And all of a sudden, you're just in a different business altogether. But back in 80, when I got into business even, um, DTC was, I'm trying to think, DTC was all about the tasting room and being able to staff it when people happen to walk into your tasting room. There were a few people like, you know, Daryl Satui and those guys and St. Jean in the Sonoma Valley. And who else was doing a lot of business in the 80s in, in um, Sonoma Valley? Maybe Ravenswood. Um, yeah. Oh, Buena Ken, Vista, of course. Yeah. I mean, Kenwood, we were doing some, yeah, we Kenwood. were doing some business. Um, and, and I remember John Sheila would say, said to me one time, he said, Bart, he said, the, the your wine should never be cheaper than it is in Safeway. So otherwise they would never uh, advertise their wine cheaper at the tasting room than at Safeway or any other retailer because they knew how much more wine the retailer could sell than what they could sell out of the tasting room. That's right, um, that's right. And then they were also very happy to give deep discounts to good customers also at that point because it, you know, if you could sell 20 cases at 50% um, off to a bunch of doctors from San Francisco um, that was still better than selling it to the wholesalers. Well, you made a personal customer who was going to come back, right? Right, right. I mean, how many of those people who walked into Safeway were going to come back to you? Right. You know, right. depending on what boxes were at the end of the aisle the next week, that's where they were going to go. Right. So, so every, yeah, everything, everything has changed now. I mean, everything. And it's, a, it's, it's one of the things that's made this industry a lot of fun for me is watching its evolution too. And everything has evolved, from, not just from the way wine is um, distributed and sold and marketed, but you know, just in terms of the way wine is written about too. Um, when I got into the business, I mean, there were so many people writing about wine and the, you know, the small 50,000 um, circulation newspaper out of Fresno would have their own wine writer. 
Right. They forget it. I mean, yeah. you've got, I mean, I can probably count on both hands a number of white writers who are making a living working at a newspaper. So that's changed too. Thank you, Internet. Um, so, I mean, everything's changed. It's really, it's, it's been fun to, to be in this industry, I must say. I just need to, uh, I need to do a few more things before I'm ready to retire. One of which is make wine available to every consumer in every state. So John, John is John Myers is just joining us. John, we're talking with Tom right now about um, you know, basically access to wine and the way wine is sold and bought and delivered to consumers. Um, and what are so where are we? You know what are what are the next steps? What is uh, you know obviously getting more than sixteen states to do so you can, for retail, but uh, you know how can how can people who buy wine participate? How can wineries participate? Um, you know, what are the, the, the roles and places in this for, for all of us? Well, you guys are all on the producer side, aren't you? Yes. Uh, well, Mark, John's a consumer. John is a consumer. Okay. So it's interesting. Um, I don't want to Chris, and, and our, I'm not, I'm not, Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, so you know, and our listeners are probably 50-50 um, industry to consumers. So okay. we have a lot of people that are that are winemakers um, or in, you know, the, the, the retail or, you know, the work in tasting rooms, uh, et cetera. And then the other half are all consumers all over the United States. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. Um, usually when a bill gets introduced into a legislature that um, has to do with direct shipping. The bill will read something like this. The state may issue a permit to out-of-state wineries and retailers allowing them to ship wine into the state. Now, what immediately happened when that bill is introduced is the wholesalers come in and they say, no, 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 no. We will not support this unless you strip out retailers. And retailers immediately get stripped out of the bill. And so it becomes a winery shipping bill only. There's never any um, there's never any fight put up by the wineries when that happens. Now I'm not criticizing wineries for that. I'm not suggesting that wineries need to fight the battles the retailers have to fight. However, I've seen that happen over and over and over for 20 years now, where wineries have not lifted a finger for their best customers, because despite the fact that there's so much DTC right now, retailers are still a key outlet for wineries. And wineries have not lifted a finger to help retailers be able to ship direct. That's not a criticism. I get it. You know, wineries, it's hard enough to make a living these days, right? And so you got to focus on what works for you. Now, that's not to say that retailers have, you know, been rooting on wineries saying DTC, DTC. The fact of the matter is that the vast majority of retailers in America do not want you shipping wine to consumers. They want to open up their doors. They want people to walk in through their doors and buy their stuff. They don't want to sell online, the vast majority of retailers. They just want people to walk in their door and buy their, buy their wine. But there is this contingent of retailers who see a national marketplace and who sell higher-end wine, who understand that that national marketplace has to be serviced. And these are the retailers that I'm working with um, that go up against wholesalers who don't want us to ship, who go up against 95% of the retailers who don't want us to ship, and who don't get any help from the uh, wineries. So, and so, are these like the the Zackies and benchmarks and and like the, the high end fine wine and often either like vintage wine or or imported wine, right? That's exactly what you. Yeah, so we're talking about we're talking about Zackies and Sotheby's and Benchmark and KNL those guys, right? Um, there's probably about. I'd say there's probably about 200 retailers across the country who are very, who do the vast majority of, um, of online sales and, and shipping. The vast majority of other retailers have no interest whatsoever in retailers in shipping across state lines, zero. They might have some interest in delivery by Drizzly, but not, not shipping. So, so when we introduce a bill, so for example, in, 2000, in, in 2021, we'll have bills introduced in New York Illinois and Michigan to open up retailer shipping. As those bills move forward, I'm not going to re rely on wineries to help get the word out about that. I'm going to rely on consumers. All of our members will reach out to say all of their 
contacts in New York and say, you need to write these people on this committee and tell them you want this. And we'll generate, you know, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 emails going to each individual person on that committee. And that combined with our lobbying is what's gonna move bills forward. So that's how we go about doing it. There's very little that consumers can do unless there's a bill on the table. When there is a bill on the table, we let them know and they'll start getting emails from retailers they know and others. Um, so that's usually how we make that work. Um, so we recently helped pass bills in Connecticut. We opened up Florida. And again, we'll have at least three states with bills next year that will allow, if they pass, allow shipments from out of state retailers. So, and so if you were the consumers listening, um, you want to go to like is free the grapes where you should sign up to participate and, and support these efforts? Go to winefreedom.org. 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 Awesome. Put your name in there, and I promise you, when we get a bill in your state, you'll be the first to know. And then you can even come down to the Capitol and you can testify and you can tell the people on the committee exactly what you think of them. Um, and why they ought to pass this bill and what you'll do if they don't vote for it, et cetera, et cetera. That's always a fun discussion. Right. I think we could probably drum up some good speakers, some good uh, committee testifiers among our listeners out there. I my, think favorite, my favorite thing, that, I mean, this sounds terrible and it, it indicates that my life is smaller than it should be, but there's nothing I like more than listening to consumers actually testify to uh, in front of a committee because it's almost always a trade, right? It's almost always the wholesaler association or the winery association or whatnot. But then you get these consumers who sit down, they've never done this before. They don't know protocol and they just launch in. And what are you talking about? How in the world can I not be able to receive wine from this guy out here? This is ridiculous. Would you get on board? And there's, I mean, there's, there's no protocol. There's no politeness. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. I love that when that happens. Well, there's some, there's a few people who know that, um, I spent the first couple of years of my life working in a state legislature as, for a lobbying firm and sat in a whole lot of committee hearings. And that would have been way more entertaining than, than the yeah, yeah. were. Oh so I God. could definitely, I can feel the you. Droning. The yeah. droning of the, uh, of the trade associations. Oh my God. You know, and it's the same testimony that they gave in writing, right? And the people right. on the committee know exactly what they're going to say. Uh, so every now and then you get a nugget of somebody who comes up and I like to be that nugget occasionally when I get to testify somewhere. Every now and then I get to testify someplace where I know there's no possibility whatsoever of this bill passing. And so it's up to me to decide whether or not I want to just kill my chances for a bill passing ever again until everyone on the committee dies or if I want to be polite. Mostly, mostly I, uh, I decide to be polite. John, did you just pull up the website? Is the website not working? I did. Why? And it's, uh, I don't think my microphone's working either. No. Hey, how? how? No microphone. Okay. Winefreedom.org, is, is, it, is it being under maintenance? Or did we get Find out. Okay. Oh, that's right. We have I'm moving servers. I forgot. Okay. Don't go to winefreedom.org yet, but go there soon. <laughs> well, yeah, well, this is, is going to go out uh, in in two Fridays from now. I got so, you know that. On the fourth, will you, we'll be up by the fourth. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's funny though. That's I was just thinking. That's something I never had to worry about when I got into this business back in 1990. Was moving servers. <laughs> I'm not even sure if somebody said to me, "We're going to move. Have to move your uh, your to a different server." I'm not even sure how I'd respond to that back then. You'd probably think you'd have to go to a different table in the restaurant or something. That's exactly right. <laughs> I would have to go to a different table. We need that new server over here. <laughs> So, um, Tom, what do you, just in other things in general in the wine business, I know one of your recent um, uh, comms was about, you know, what's going on in the restaurant business. And, and what are some other things that, um, that have piqued your interest as of late in the business? Well, I've been worried about, uh, I'm worried about restaurants terribly. Um, I mean, they're, they're being devastated. Absolutely. It's, a, it's catastrophic, particularly from a wine sales perspective. No one's selling wine to restaurants now. The only people buying wine right now are the Olive Gardens of the world, right? And let me tell you, they're not buying, you know, Buckland Old Hill Ranch. Um, they're buying... Um, Buckland Old Hill Ranch drop, I like it. Yeah, they're not buying that stuff, right? I mean, it's Mayomi. Um, so that bothers me a lot. And I think that when the pandemic 
starts to resolve. I think it's incumbent on the states to uh, to compensate them somehow because I think they've taken the brunt of our response in a lot of ways, right? I mean, close them down. What's the first thing they've said to restaurants? And I just read somewhere, I can't remember what states it was in, but they tracked something like 4% of the COVID cases back to restaurants, 4%. And so we have to, we have to close down these restaurants for 4% of the cases being tracked back to restaurants. I'm not in a position to say whether or not that's smart. I am in a position to say that um, somebody who's been sort of the tip of the spear has to be compensated. Um, so I'm hoping that'll happen at some point, that restaurants will be compensated. I'm trying to think yeah. what else I've been writing about a lot of different things recently. Um, I did get in trouble recently online um, when I made the suggestion that it's not the worst thing in the world to describe a wine as feminine or masculine. Um, oh, yes, you, yes, you did get in trouble on that. I did. I did get in trouble <laughs> for that. Um, but my argument was that without responding, you guys, if I say to you, um, this Merlot, um, let's put it this way, this Russian River Valley Merlot has a more feminine character than it than um, this this uh, Calistoga Merlot, which is more masculine in character. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I think you do. I think everyone does, right? I think if yeah. I say that Riesling is a more feminine wine compared to Cabernet, which is a more masculine wine, I don't think it matters what gender you call yourself. You understand what I'm saying. And I think that the masculine and feminine as, as descriptive terms are good shorthand, particularly if you're doing sort of um, uh, um, comparisons between different wines. But we live in an interesting age and things are changing and vocabulary is changing and attitudes are changing. And so a lot of people took issue with the idea that I could assign a set of characteristics to the terms feminine and masculine. So that was an interesting, um, it, we're changing a lot in that regard right now. Um, the culture I'm, is changing. I almost, I almost felt like there were people that that was a new term to them. Like by you saying it, they'd never heard of that before. That was the weirdest thing. I went back and actually looked for the first um, the first use of the term, I think it was feminine or masculine in print. And it went all the way back to uh, uh, George Sainsbury, uh, Notes on a Cellar book, I think it was, back in like, I don't know, 1880 or something like that. It was uh, the word masculine or feminine was used in print to describe the wine. And we've been using that forever. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've used the word masculine or feminine to describe a wine. And I never had pushback, but I wanted to see if I would get pushback this year and i did well and, I and without like saying one way or the other how many wine descriptors are there that you could drop just like those two oh and everybody oh. would agree and understand and have an idea and actually think that they know what the wine was like because of the ways the words that you you know every other one they're so subjective and and experiential um, that it's we're super limited. I mean, it's so limited in general that we can, you know, we could do a whole show on, on tasting notes. Um, what, what are your favorites, Sam? Your dis favorite descriptors? You know, I, the, the ones, John, that um, are universal, the ones that somebody who, who has never tasted wine before can try can pick up on as much as a master psalm and I guess we're not supposed to say that anymore either uh, of, of high level sommelier fuck um, uh, for me usually are about the texture and and because whether you can decide or decipher what something tastes like and if it's if it's dark chocolate or milk chocolate or or elderberry or current or cassette you know that you have to know what those things taste like and also be able to open your mind to that. You can feel stuff in your mouth when you drink wine that everybody is going to feel. You'll feel it. I'll feel it. Tom would feel it. Bart will feel it. Six people sitting in a, you know, a socially distant outdoor tent tasting tent in Sonoma will <laughs> feel it also. And in regards to the terms masculine and feminine in a wine, when you say that, that's what I think of first. Is it's a texture. Absolutely, yeah. You're and the, the interesting thing about texture too, or describing texture in notes, is that texture is the most um, reliably reproduced 
sensation in a wine. That is to say that if I tell you that um, uh, the wine falls sort of uh, rich and tannic on my palate, when I say that, you better understand what that means than if I say, you know, this has light notes of gooseberry. I mean, right. <laughs> you're better able to understand yeah. textural descriptors. Um, but you know, the really, really interesting thing that's happening right now is there's a move to expand the descriptor set that people in the wine business use in order to accommodate um, folks who did not grow up, say, in the American or the French or the English culture. What if you grew up in Thailand? What if you grew up in Mexico? What if you grew up in India? Your, um, your experience with, with flavor profiles, maybe even textures, is different than ours, right? But there's no real wine vocabulary um, that's native to, to India or Thailand. And so a lot of people now are suggesting that we need to broaden out our wine descriptor vocabulary to accommodate folks who experienced a different set of flavors growing up than, uh, than you and I, you know, when we experienced. Because when we grew up, most of you are old enough, we went to ethnic food and we went to an Italian restaurant, right? Um, <laughs> but now it's, it's different, right? I mean, my boy is six years old and he'll taste Thai food before he tastes Italian. You know, he'll probably taste an Indonesian dish or pho before he tastes, um, what, French, right? Because I don't cook French. Um, so well, and there's... And there's and there's those are the restaurants that are opening like new restaurants opening in communities are not Italian fine dining. You know, they may be California fine dining stuff, but they have they have a, a fusion of some sort to them. And um, and and it's intimidating if you're a wine salesman or a you know winemaker as to how you get your wine to fit in with those cuisines. Right. So if you're always using descriptors of a French origin that might not translate well to somebody who's from, uh, from Mexico or Ecuador or, or Colombia, right? And so there's an argument to be made for expanding the wine vocabulary. And that's one of the interesting conversations that's happening right now as a result of um, diversity being more important in the wine industry. So there's a lot of really interesting things happening in the wine industry, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. But what is that Chinese proverb about living in interesting times? We definitely do. <laughs> Is it a Chinese proverb? I, I mean, maybe as we expand, we'll find better descriptions for wines. I mean, you know, I, I think that the the framework of, you know, so, you know, Anglo-Franco wine descriptor world is is so limited. Um, and, yeah. and I think pushes people away more than it draws people in as as from a from a marketing standpoint from actually selling wine standpoint um you know i think that there's a lot and this isn't necessarily about i guess it is about diversity and, and inclusiveness there's there's a lot we can do to improve the way that we talk about it and um, i think i think there always has been i mean consider this um one of the most useless wine terms that's ever been that's ever been used, but which is at the same time, um, the best known is this idea of a wine having legs, right? It's completely useless in every respect. And yet odds are, if someone says to you, oh, this wine has legs, they know to see how the wine drifts out the side of the glass, right? Well, really, honestly, I mean, instead of trying to determine what the wine, what the wine's character is by looking at how it drips down the inside of the glass, maybe just put it in your mouth. And yet this industry is, has used legs to the point that everyone knows what they are, yet it's a stupid term. It means nothing. Um, so we can do better where wine terms concerned. We can do better. <laughs> so one one thing I, I appreciate you about you, Thomas, um, you don't shy away from Twitter confrontations. <laughs> and a, a long time ago, and I think I was at a wine and weed conference. Um, we had a little back and forth about about cannabis and alcohol sales, and um, you know, I'm I'm pro ending all sorts of prohibitions. Um, so, and and you know, came from from that angle. But can we talk about that just for a little bit? Places where cannabis is now legal, what it is doing to to wine sales and 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 alcohol sales in general, and and um, kind of what the competition there's like, cause you know, I, I certainly have yeah. my thoughts about it, but I think that you probably come at it from a, a little bit of a different angle. Well, let me just say this. I've been in favor of legalization of cannabis since I went to Humboldt State University to get my uh, 
my uh, bachelor's degree. Um, that's before that I had, I had partaken a little bit, but it was crap. It was absolute crap. And when I went to Humboldt state, I'll never forget this. Uh, when I got there and got to the dorms, a guy knocks on my door and he comes in and he says, hi, my name's Will. I'm going to be coming by twice a week to take orders. What? <laughs> and so he, he takes out these things. He shows me all the buds and he's going to sell me, right? Your own lead guy. He, he went door to door, right? And he says, watch this. He takes a bud. The bud must have been, you know, half my hand size. He slams it up against the wall and sticks there for like six seconds. I had never seen that before. I was sold. So, um, where did, and where had you grown up before you went? I grew up in Marin County in Nevada, right? Um, I just had never really exposed myself to anything of quality, shall we say. Right. So, but then all of a sudden the question becomes, wine, beer, and spirits have competition for inebriation dollars. We have to recognize that one of the reasons that we drink is not just for the pleasure of the bouquet of the wine, for the way it tastes, but it also makes us feel a certain way. If wine didn't have alcohol, there might not be as many of us on this discussion right now. Alcohol is central. It makes us feel a certain way. The inebriation quality of wine and beer and spirits is important. The same can be said doubly for cannabis. Some people who have been using alcohol to round off their edges are going to go over to cannabis when they would have instead, had it not been legalized, stayed with alcohol. So I think there are going to be a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people who were drinking, you know, $15 Chardonnay at seven o'clock at night who are gonna switch over to cannabis. I think that's gonna, to a degree, it's gonna hurt alcohol sales and it's gonna hurt wine sales. It's not gonna hurt the winery that's selling a $90 Cabernet um, out of Sonoma Valley or out of Napa. But it's definitely going to hurt wine sales. And there have been some studies that suggest that that's absolutely what's happening. And so after you realize that, that the question for me is, to what extent should the wine industry cooperate with the cannabis industry? To what extent should the wine industry offer them a leg up? And my response to that is not one bit. I say legalize it everywhere, right? Let's get some, some interstate sales going too. But I'm in the wine business. My job is to see wine sales increase. And you don't see me going out and, and promoting spirit sales, you know? You don't see me going out and advocating for anything else that's going to cut into wine sales, specifically into wine sales. Um, so while I think we ought to cheer on the legalization of cannabis, we're in the wine business. I don't think I want to give away as many secrets as the cannabis industry wants us to give away, particularly in terms of direct sales. But we can still cheer them on and say, knock yourself out. After all, saying? they're coming to us, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're, um, they're not only are they suggesting cross promotions where it's possible, but they're also creating an ABA system, aren't they? That wasn't their idea. <laughs> so that's where I stand on cannabis. It should be legal, but I'm not sure the wine industry should be helping them take business from us. Sam, can you ship uh, cannabis interstate now? No. Uh, Anywhere? I mean, no, nowhere. That's a big yeah. problem for the industry too. Yeah, it's a huge I mean, problem. And, and it, frankly, it's it's one of the um, sort of precursors. Uh, you know, the, the 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 AVA or the ACA. The Appalachian system in, in cannabis is uh, a precursor to a day when one day, hopefully, that industry can um, ship interstate because it's, because laws have changed at a federal level. I mean, that's that's you know you can't go interstate um, under current you know the current legal framework. Um, so that's that's holding people back because really Sonoma cannabis or Santa Barbara cannabis, no such thing as Napa cannabis, Mendocino, Humboldt, you know, the Emerald Triangle, whatever that is, those things, those, those brands um, don't have as much value in California as they do nationally. Like you can't, you can only go so far with Santa Barbara, bud. <laughs> In California. Whatever happened to Acapulco Gold and Panama Red, right? <laughs> Very yeah. 1960s. They're, they're still out there, John. That's, you can still find it if you want. Um, 
but so so it is um you know you can't it is a big part of the problem and and with and that's why frankly most of the legal pot is pretty mediocre um because it goes into this dispensary system in california that has put a certain value on this product and they're only going to get so much out of it um also it limits growth too doesn't it? i mean what if you're making a lot what if you're producing a lot of cannabis and it's good right but you're only your only market is say Oregon, you're growing in Oregon, you know, or you're, you're uh, packaging it in Oregon and you can only sell it to Oregon um, dispensaries. What happens when all of a sudden you can sell it to every single state in the country? I mean, all of a sudden valuations of those companies just, I mean, explode um, in a way that they would, they wouldn't if you still had 50 different marketplaces that you couldn't cross state lines with products, everything changes when they get introduced. Uh, interstate distribution and it'll happen i think um and pretty soon the fed's going to say you know let's we really would like to take our cut here there's an excise tax to be had well i mean we just went through an, one another election where the only thing that the entire country seems to agree on is legalizing especially cannabis oh. but i'll i mean everywhere every state that had a a cannabis related bill on the on the ballot it passed and by wide margins. By the way, I'm curious, it, how is, what is the dispensary system like in say Sonoma County now? Because when I left, there weren't very many dispensaries in Sonoma County and there was nothing in Napa. There still aren't uh, yeah. very many dispensaries in Sonoma County. Uh, you can count them on less than two hands, I believe. Um, wow. Well, there are only one in Sonoma, right, Sam? Just one in town. There is not one in town. What's they are up? talking about one in town, but then they just kind of pulled back because the one thing that the Sonoma city government has a great ability to do is snatch, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory uh, <laughs> with alacrity. Um, so there isn't a dispensary in the city limits and there's a limit on, and I don't believe you can have any more, although they're pushing for it, um, dispensaries in county in unincorporated county so it's basically santa rosa sebastopol and, and katati that have dispensaries yeah, uh, yeah the only one that i knew about every, everywhere and that's sebastopol. um there was a nice one in sebastopol if i recall correctly but talk about culture shock i, I moved to to oregon to the willamette valley in uh, 2018 and i swear to god you can't go a quarter mile without coming across 15 different dispensaries I mean, they are absolutely, I don't know how they stay in business, to be honest with you. Um, there's a lot of people smoking a lot of dope up here. I got to tell you. Um, but it's when you them, they give you a pound, right? I think that's what, I think that's what a promotion. <laughs> Oregon had like a huge, a few years ago, there was like a, a million pound surplus of cannabis in the state of that's Oregon. Right. That's exactly right. And here's the crazy thing. You can buy, there were places where you could buy an ounce, an ounce up here of really good dope for like 65 bucks. I was paying 25 bucks for an eighth in 1986. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, we worked hard back in 86 to get our, uh, our yeah. Sam, does cannabis age like fine wine? You know, are you looking for a 20 year old? Uh, no. Ounce? Uh, no. Also, nobody's ever let it, does it really do that? I mean, um, I mean, you, you would have to hold it. In a yeah. humidified, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm actually curious to look into um, aging in like a, in a humidor situation, like really the best buds. Well, the way, you know, this would not be too difficult to do actually, because if we could find the guy who I roomed with, <laughs> I'm sure that there were buds that dropped into his uh his couch, and I, I promise you, they're still there because I doubt he had gotten up <laughs> off his couch in 20 years. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Hey. You get you get in France, and you're right. It's like uh, there's a dispensary on every corner. Well, there's a wine shop on every corner. If you're yeah. down down in Fransac, you know you you got a lot of places to buy great wine. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Do do you see any potential for uh, cross promotion at all? I know you said you didn't, but in the future, do you think they're ever going to change? The laws have to change first. I mean. Uh... On a federal level, uh, cannabis is, it's still illegal, right? 
And so you have your you have a federal license to protect. And so you can't be dealing with illegal um, illegal things like that. Once it becomes um, uh, legal on a federal level, then, oh yeah, you're definitely gonna have cross promotions. <laughs> the first thing that people are gonna think of doing because it's the most obvious thing is um, wine and cannabis dinners. And they've already done that, right? I don't know if any of you have been to them, but you've got actually- Unofficially, I've been to lots of them. But... Well, yeah, but, but no, now we're talking about, you know, white tablecloth, et cetera, et cetera, right? And there's four courses and there's a different strain um, of weed with every single course which is just stupid, right? I mean, how are you going to get to dessert? Um, but, but also, gonna, how are you not going to get to dessert? Really? Well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And they're going to and you'll use the cannabis. It'll become an herb of some sort, a culinary herb, if you will. So that's going to happen too. And then also down the road, you'll certainly have um, uh, branding. You'll you'll have wineries that are also selling cannabis. It's it seems to me that there's great synergy there. Um, there's some people who are concerned with the idea of growing cannabis near grapes. Um, and they always point to the eucalyptus trees as an example of what can happen. Um, so you'll have to mitigate that factor, but I mean, it, you're gonna get a premium for Napa Valley cannabis, aren't you? Just because it's Napa Valley, you're gonna get a premium for Sonoma Valley just because it's Sonoma Valley. Um, so I, I think down the road, we'll see that, but we need, it needs to be descheduled and legalized on a federal level before it happens. Well, there are some people who've gotten, you know, and, and not just like crazy Sonoma Valley Benzigers and things um, made the line really, really close. The, the Coppola brand of cannabis comes or like originally like the promotional vehicle was a tin that looked like a wine bottle that you like cracked open and the, and the, and the weed was inside of that. And it was like the branding and brand image was not exactly Coppola branding, but was about as freaking close as it could be without being exact. Um, and I don't know how far that brand has ever gone, but when that first when that first dropped, I was like, oh, that's um, that's it's about as close to the line as you can get. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know it's definitely like they're they're on the edge for sure. There's people out there on the verge. But here's the other thing too. When I, earlier I was talking about, I'm not sure we want to help the cannabis industry. And here's another reason why. Once the cannabis tasting rooms start opening up, right? And you got people coming to wine country and they're like, yeah, let's go to a winery. We'll go to two or three wineries today, but let's go to a, let's go to a cannabis tasting room. I think that when they do that, that's, that's a sale that a winery loses. I think they would have gone to a winery instead. And again, I'm not suggesting there aren't to be any prohibitions on what the cannabis producers ought to be able to do. I just don't think that um, it's in the long-term financial interest of the wine industry to help them get there. I mean, I, I see that as for sure, because I know the wine consumers that are coming here now are looking for it. They're getting deliveries from Spark. They're asking yeah. their drivers, they're asking people at tasting rooms. Um, but if there's three open, you know, cannabis tasting rooms and on farms with really interesting, you know, experiences and stories, that becomes a greater tourism draw also. I mean, there will be people who come to town to go to the just, you know, cannabis farm tasting room and, and stop at a winery that somebody there recommends to them also. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's not a, a zero sum game. That is, uh, you know, assuming that the counties that we live and work in allow us to have more tourism. Right. Um, so <laughs> there is always that piece of it, right? Hey, Tom, I've got a question. What are your most effective promos that you have done um for supermarket wines and for wine brands like sam's and bart's because they are different but what are the most effective ways of promoting those that you've done and you've seen well with with supermarket wines and then we shouldn't that shouldn't be a pejorative right because the vast majority of people drink supermarket wines right if it weren't for supermarket wines it wouldn't be a wine industry um but what i have found over the years is that the most effective way to um to push a brand forward in a supermarket or a big box setting is to become as tight, have the brand become as tight as possible with three or four key salespeople in a region. And it's far less expensive to wine and dine and, uh, and to travel those people to where you are to make friends with them and stay in contact with them. And a, a real good salesperson 
will work on your behalf. That's the biggest problem that, you know, say a mid-sized brand will have um, when they're in a large book is that they might get pushed aside by a much larger brand. They don't get the attention. But if they do get the attention, then their wine will get showed, showed not just shown, not just to, um, to the Safeways of the world, the Kroger's, but also the smaller markets um, and the chain, the chain uh, restaurants or local chains. But it's all coming from the, uh, uh, from the salesperson, the individual salesperson. You're so, talking like distributor reps. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. They're the key. They always were the key, at least when I was working with restaurant brands. Do you arm these guys with, uh, you know, I mean, shelf talkers, standard stuff, end caps? What is it that actually does drive besides the relationship? Well, you, if you're going to work in the, if you're going to play in the, in the supermarket, first of all, you have to be willing to uh, reduce your margins for sure. Um, so that's going to happen. And you're going to have to provide them with what your competition does. There are, I find that there are fewer um, shelf talkers these days. Do you guys find the same thing? It seems like they used to be much more prolific, but definitely we would create the shelf talkers. Uh, we would try to do them on a regular basis and change them. Uh, I always liked working with numbers as opposed to um, uh, descriptors. It's it's terrible to say, but if if one of my clients got ninety five points, I mean, it's hard to argue with ninety five. Well, it used to be hard to argue with ninety five points. Now you have to argue with ninety eight points, right? Um, so so yeah, providing providing those on-premise account, large on-premise accounts with sales tools was always important. But, you know, being in the market, working with the salespeople, nothing replaced that. So, And how about uh, at the level of Sam and, and Bart here that, you know, they're not in the grocery stores. What seems to be the most uh, impactful in, in expanding their market and increasing sales with their current market? Well, your current mailing list that you have right now is your most valuable commodity, right? Um, and I remember being shocked one day when someone told me, Tom, you are so off the mark in terms of the strategies you're using to reach out to customers. There is one strategy that nobody's actually using that works for me 100% of the time. I asked him what it was. And he said, the owner of the company or one of the principals needs to pick up the phone and call the top 20 buyers on your list and wish them a happy birthday and not ask for a sale. So there was a guy who I was working with. So let's give this a try. Let's see what happens. We'll take the top 20, half of those we'll make a call to, half we won't, and we'll see what happens over the next two or three email cycles, right? Oh my God, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was like a 70% difference. It was stupid. And people don't think of that, right? They think about putting together emails, shooting them out on a scheduled basis. You'll do it every two months, et cetera, et cetera. That's extraordinarily um, effective is that personal relationship, but it takes time and it takes an effort. Um, I'm a big fan of earned media also. Um, I would like to see Eric Asimov um, write about my, uh, my small little brand out of Sonoma saying it's the best Zinfandel ever. Um, I th still think that's extraordinarily valuable and can be extended into a lot of different venues and a lot of different channels. So that's where I said those. It gives a lot of editorial integrity. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, advertising is one thing, but when you got the New York times saying, this is a great summer values in, that's a lot of readership. Plus you push it out over social media, you put it in your newsletters, you put this and that it works. It still works tremendously well, but to do so, that, you got to pick up the phone, right? You got to call Eric or you got to call somebody else and say, Hey, try this. So that's where I come in. Um, so to all of our listeners, if Sam and I are calling you on your birthday, you, you right, heard yeah. it here first. Where you the idea came from. Stole that idea, you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Tom, I, I, I want to, and thank you for all your time today. This has been great. Um, can we touch a little bit on wine and health? Like when can I make a claim that drinking a glass of wine might make you feel better? You mean make that claim on your packaging or in your marketing materials? <laughs> Not in your lifetime. I'm not saying I have. I'm saying when can I? Yeah, like, not, like your, what, not your lifetime or my what lifetime. Will it ever happen? No, it won't. <laughs> it won't. As a matter of fact, the federal government right now is considering changing their dietary recommendations so that it used to be that they would recommend that 
men have no more than two glasses of alcohol a day and women only have one. And now they're thinking about bringing it down to one glass a day for men. It's stupid. I mean, we need more alcohol, I think, generally, as a sex. Um, but beyond that, it's the, uh, the physiology doesn't make sense. But it's a, this is an ideological change. And I don't see a, I don't see a time when the federal government's going to be saying, let's open it up. Say whatever you want. Alcohol's the best. That's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't think so, but I just wanted to. I just wanted to throw it out there. And you know, I don't. I'm not sure they should. Should they? Should we be able to say make any claim we want? No, we shouldn't, because then you can say something um, is produced away, and and you know, it's truth in advertising, right? I mean, right. It, you you we we need to be held accountable. We've seen already the business stretch um, terms and stretch things, um, I think they would totally take advantage of it. Totally. Well, who's going who's to be the first person to say, drink this and it'll cure cancer? Somebody will say it. Somebody right. will. Right. So. <laughs> well, guys, I really appreciate you having me on. This is a lot of, this is one of the most fun times I've ever had on a podcast. And I've been on a few of them. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. And highly, and highly entertaining. <laughs> highly entertaining, right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, everybody out there, uh, 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 fermentationwineblog.com, um, Tom, thank you very much. Uh, it comes out every day or almost every day. Everybody check it out and, um, and everybody have a great, uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. Happy Repeal Day. This is coming out after Thanksgiving. Happy oh, that's right. Sorry. Happy Repeal Day. Happy Repeal Day. Right. So, okay. Happy Repeal Day. Uh, what, what are you going to drink to celebrate Repeal Day? Cider. Cider. Absolutely, cider. Some of the best cider in the world is made up here in Oregon, in Washington, and over in New York. So I'm gonna have myself some nice uh, hearty cider. I, I love a good cider. Yeah. I probably drink more cider than wine. Don't tell There's anybody. Cidery up here called Easy Orchard. Easy Orchard. Make an amazing dry cider. Uh, unbelievable dry cider from Heirloom Apples. Easy Orchard, I'm gonna be drinking a lot of that. Now I have a question for you. Can I get that shipped to me? <laughs> As a matter of fact, you can, yes. Okay. Yeah, you can, you can. So, right on. Uh, anything else? Any other shout outs? Bring up Brian here to like lead us into the ex ex the exit, the outro. Right. John, just, that, just that, um, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we started uh, taking questions um, through Instagram. And uh, so look for us to be answering some of those questions. And a lot of their questions are going to stir on some uh, conversations in the podcast going forward. So, I'm looking forward to that. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Subscribe, review, uh, find us on all of the places. Listen to back episodes at winemakerspod.com and follow Tom on social media. Tom on uh, Tom on Twitter is, is a good follow. Yeah, Tom. It's at Tom C. Work. Tom C. Work on Twitter. Daily fermentations. I've always called it daily fermentations. I'm going to continue to call it daily fermentations. That'll get you there. All right. <laughs> all right, Thanks, guys. guys. Thanks, you guys. See you next time. Take care, Tom.